Good morning, everyone. How do we react to the world we live in? We are constantly bombarded with conflicting thoughts, ideas, and worldviews. As aliens and strangers in this world, we are always seeing the sin that we are opposed to on display. We hate that we hate that God is not being honored as he deserves, right? We fight to put to death certain sins, but then everywhere we look, the world is lavishly enjoying or partaking of these sins. Living in this world is like wading through the Everglades barefoot in t-shirts or t-shirts and shorts. Any of you watch any of those TV shows where they go on those nature things and they go down to the Everglades and you, they take you on those boats and guys are looking for the real large alligators and they, they're, they're, they jump in the water, in that murky water, and kind of hunt down these alligators. Anybody ever seen those things? I think those people are absolutely crazy. There's all kinds of uh, poisonous insects and venomous snakes and hungry alligators and They get joy out of swimming in the water with uh, nothing but a little hook on the end. I can't even imagine that. But this is a perfect word picture for us that are Christians that live in this world. We live in a world that is filled with demonically led creatures. The vast majority of the world is lost and headed towards hell. You understand that. The world hates its creator, and they have false gods they worship continuously. Often everywhere we look, we see sin and wickedness on display. It's as if we are wading through that Everglades, spiritual Everglades, that is, of things that are always out there to get us. It can feel like we're walking unprotected and alone through a spiritual swamp filled with wickedness. How do we react to this world we live in? Do we jump in? Or do we cower in our safe places that we construct in our minds? Do we find ourselves hiding in our, in our homes and in our cubicles and we try to keep to ourselves as much as possible? Do we find ourselves this way? Today we're going to get a glimpse of how a disciple must live in this evil world. We get a glimpse into the relationship between the disciples of Jesus and the lost world that we live in. And interact with. We will examine four features in our passage of a disciple's life. This thing is not working as good. With that gone, that makes it really hard. That will have to get fixed. We got to turn this sanctuary like soon. Otherwise, I'm going to be turning around to see if it's really there. And Ronaldo had the same problem this morning, so we've got to do that. Sorry, sidetrack. We will examine four features of a disciple's life. Notice first in your Bibles, the disciple is sometimes alone but still fully engaged. Again, let's read verses 14 through 15. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left. In our passage, we observe 
we observe Paul was waiting for the other missionaries to arrive. Paul's previous circumstances can't be underestimated here as we study this passage. This was a rejected man. Think about his introduction to missions in Europe. He was travel-wearied, as we all know. He was beaten in Philippi. He was chased out of Thessalonica, and he was then pursued by those same Thessalonican Jews all the way to Berea and run off from there. And now he was sent away to the south, and once he gets there, those that escorted him there leave him there alone. So he's left in Athens all by himself. There's one situation that almost all of us in this place would probably dislike more than any. We don't like to be alone on the battlefield. Would you not agree? There's nothing more demoralizing and frightening than to be left alone in a hostile and unknown city of unbelievers. Before Paul had others with him, encouraging him and standing beside him. Remember, Silas was beaten with him and was in the jail and they were worshiping and praising God. But now, Paul is in this city of unbelieving pagans all alone. God's providence had Paul here in this city. And I don't know about you, but I would have been tempted to hide or find a quiet place. I would have considered hiding out until the others showed up. At least I would have put on some clothes that the city wore and walk around acting like a tourist and probably kept my mouth shut. How about you? I don't know about you, but every time I would go into a new city, the place I want to go is to see if there's any Christians there. I want to hang out with them. He was in a place with nobody that was a believer. There were no believers. He was all by himself. However, notice Paul's attention is not on himself. But notice he said... It says, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing. Paul was alone, but he was not ignorant of his surroundings. When we are alone, we can often think it's time for a break. When no one is around, we think we can think to ourselves, I guess I get a little bit of me time now. Anybody ever said that? Let me get out and get out the TV and watch some of those old reruns on TV. Or let me get away from the people and just get some rest and relaxation. But not Paul. He was aware of all the circumstances around him. We often live oblivious also to our, to our world that we live in. We are so me-minded that we can become totally unaware of what's going on around us. I know we who... Believe in Jesus, don't live self-focused lives always. But we can still be prone to be this way, can't we? To be me-minded. Anybody in here prone to be me-minded? All of us, right? One of the reasons we check out of the world is we don't like what we see. Would you agree? If it's always bombarding you, you think, I don't want any of this. So I'd rather just not even think about it. It either angers us, the world, or frustrates us or grieves us. And we can think these emotions are always bad. So we seek to suppress these emotions and feelings. But believers, I want to make something very clear for you today. Emotions or feelings informed from biblical evaluations of our surroundings are acceptable. Yeah, you heard the guy that's always putting down emotions is saying today it's good to have emotions. 
and feelings. Oh no, what are we talking about? He seems to be contradicting himself. No, I'm not, I promise. Biblically informed emotions should not be suppressed. Did you hear me? Biblically informed emotions should not be suppressed. Instead, they should motivate us to respond biblically to our community. Again, where I think we who are reformed get sidetracked is we are all about doctrine, but we don't always allow it to affect our hearts. We don't apply it to our circumstances. And when we do apply it, we suppress the tensions in our souls that it creates. What do we do with those tensions? Y'all know what I'm talking about. When you're walking in the mall and you see something you don't want to see, what do we do with that? It sits in our soul and we say, I'm going to go over there and confront that person. Or, I can't say anything. Or, what do we do with that grappling that goes on in our soul? Y'all know what I'm talking about. How often do you deal with this at the workplace? All the time? You're constantly dealing with this, right? Well, Paul was aware of his circumstances. We need to be aware of our circumstances. We need to be aware of our surroundings. But his awareness also produced emotions. His spirit was being provoked within him. Notice that's what it says. Was being provoked within him as he was observing the city. Paul's inner spirit. I love this little verse. I think it's something that we need to meditate on more. Paul's inner spirit, his regenerate heart, his new mind in Christ was moved with emotions. It says he was being provoked within him. This is a critical little phrase. This reveals his knowledge of God and man affected his emotions. And this wasn't a one-time trigger. The Greek here implies that Paul was continuously being provoked. So he walks around the city and he's always agitated to a degree about this. So we see an ongoing stimulated spirit is a natural part of the believer's life. Do you hear me? You should be having tension in your soul. If you're not, you might be dead. You might not be spiritually alive. Do you understand if we live as aliens in this world, guess what? There's going to be tension. It should be rubbing against your soul all the time. If it's not, maybe we haven't allowed that doctrine to really hit our heart and then be applied to the world that we live in. Do you understand what I'm getting at here, folks? This is very important. This is a very interesting word, provoked. Provoked here means to cause a state of inward aggravation or to be urged on or to be stimulated. It can also be associated with to be provoked to wrath or to be stirred to anger. It can also mean to be aroused by grief. Which one of is in, which one's in view in verse uh, 16 of chapter 17? Is it anger or grief that he's provoked to? I think the answer is yes. I think probably both. Obviously, the focus here is on Paul's right biblical anguish over the lost and their sinful lives. Provoked to righteous anger over God's name being blasphemed, yet also provoked to grief over the deadly direction of the sinners. Beloved, is this, is our, is this our hearts? 
Is this what's going on with us? Paul was just like Jesus. You see, he's just like the, uh, uh, the Lord. He was moved to grief. We know Jesus grieved, right? He was provoked to anger. We know Jesus was provoked to anger. He was moved with compassion. Those are emotions that are good. And we see it in this verse. If you don't have those, you need to ask yourself, what's wrong? So back to our own lives. Does our environment, does our circumstances provoke you? Does it? Does your neighbor's condition stir your heart? Does the wickedness of your society arouse you to grief? This is one thing. I don't. In some ways, Facebook and some of these things are actually dumbing down our attitudes because we're constantly bombarded with this stuff all the time, right? And we can just mark it off as, oh, I like or I, it's soon to be, dislike that. But folks, what about just letting it sit in your soul a little bit and responding the proper way? What do we do? How do we do when, how do we respond when our society and our culture and our world is constantly bombarding us with sin and wickedness and evil and blasphemy to God? Does it provoke you? If it doesn't, you need to check your heart. We need to seek ways to quicken our hearts for God and people's souls. As R.C. Sproul said yesterday, keep pouring gasoline on the fire of our souls. I think we need this, don't we? So how do we, why do, how do we produce this provoked soul over those things that are happening? How, do we, how are we provoked in our spirits? I think the answer is, is ultimately through the word of God. The Bible actually says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, that we should consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. We're supposed to look to each other and tell each other how we can stimulate you to love and good deeds. Well, that word stimulate has the same connotation, doesn't it? So if we're supposed to consider how to stimulate one another, what do you think we should do to ourselves? How can you stimulate someone else if you can't even stimulate yourself? How about that? We need, to, we need to wake up, don't we? How do we get this, and how does this happen? I think by abiding in Christ. The more we let his word permeate our souls, and we pray, and we seek him, and we meditate on him, and we enjoy him, we ask ourselves often these, this question, or these questions, how does Scripture apply to me? How does Scripture apply to me? And how does Scripture apply to the world that I live in? What does Scripture say about my neighbor? What does Scripture say about my president? What does it say about our government? What does it say about these things? I think we have a disconnect, don't we? We have the theological Christian... And then we have the applied Christian, the Christian that actually applies the Bible. The one that applies the Bible has emotional responses to what's happening. It's affecting your heart. If your heart's not affected, then you haven't been applying the Bible to yourself. Do you understand? These questions will provoke us and provoke our hearts. How does the scriptures apply to me? 
And how does it apply to the world that I live in? We need to engage the world around us with a biblical worldview. We need to look at the world and interpret it through the biblical paradigm. And if we do that, what's going to happen? We're going to be agitated. (laughs) We're going to be angered. We're going to grieve. God forbid we grieve over somebody, right? And I know some of you in here are saying, oh, you just gave me license to get angry. I did. I gave you license to get angry? Yes, I did. Righteous anger, right? Just a side note, the passage does not condone all forms of anger and sadness. It's not that guy that walks around moping because he got hurt. It's not about you, ultimately. I'm not saying we are justified in being provoked to anger every time someone inconveniences us. That never happens, does it? It it doesn't say let your emotions flow without any check either. Don't try to justify your unrighteous anger the next time someone pulls out in front of you while you're driving. You selfish animal. That's very tamed down to what some of you think and say. If we are provoked to sin against God, that's not what we're supposed to be doing. But if we are provoked because we see others sinning against God, that's a different issue. I hope it affects your souls. Watching those videos of Planned Parenthood, that angers me and grieves me, doesn't it, you? I, I, I don't think we should bury our heads in the sand. I think we should let that hit our souls. Let us understand the idolatry and the wickedness of our land. And that's what Paul did. Again, if we are provoked by sin against God, that's one thing. But not getting our way is not a reason to get provoked or emotionally charged up. What provoked him? Notice, as he was observing the city full of idols, Paul was provoked over the community's idolatry. Paul was provoked because they had these false gods. Uh, observing the world's idolatry, uh, idolatry should provoke us also. It should stir our souls with emotion. I believe here it is biblically righteous emotions within Paul. Paul is stirred within his soul. This is a picture of the Pantheon. pantheon. It's still... Um, that, that's actually... Well, the picture's not super great, but it's okay. It's still there. It's a little uh, smaller than a football field. And again, the Greeks, it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. They celebrated and worshipped the gods of the sun, moon, rain, love, everything at this. This was a place where gods were worshipped. These idols were demonically inspired idols, right? They rejected the general revelation of the one true creator, For their man-made gods. That's what the heart does. And this wicked response or idolatry provoked Paul's heart. And again, if our own world, as we walk around and see our community, our neighbors, our world, and we're not provoked, we have a problem. But we should be provoked 
our emotions with anguish or righteous anger or great sorrow. Beloved, if God's holiness is being blasphemed and humanity's plight is not provoking us, then we might need to check our spiritual condition. The rebellion of the world should grieve you, does it? When you go to work on Monday, does it grieve you that you are passing thousands and thousands of people that are dying and going to hell? When we, go, we, we, we think way much too much like an ant. We just all about our work. I'm, I know, go to the ant, you sluggard. That's a good thing. But, but remember, don't be so obsessed with your world and getting your job done that you don't notice what's going on around you. Understand, people are dying and going to hell. And they hate God. I think evangelism is a natural flow of every single believer if they are affected by a biblical worldview, if they're applying the scriptures. You understand? If you're not applying the scriptures, then it won't affect you at all. Again, this is application of doctrine. If we know total depravity, if we understand the offensive nature of sin against a holy God, if we truly know and love and adore the Lord who bought us and we know the hope of the gospel, then our hearts will be provoked within us regularly as we see the world around us. Our problem is often doctrine doctrine falls flat into our hearts and they need to be reignited. We need to allow scripture truth to move us. Again, the reason people who love Jesus share him is they know he is their Lord. If we really understand that, we will share him. It's not an option. They are moved to share him. We are motivated to share him. We are motivated to love others because of him. I want to emphasize this verse today because often we aren't told the emotions behind Bible characters. We just see them doing things. Here, we see what Paul was thinking and what was going on in his heart. He was abiding in the Lord and therefore he was provoked by the wickedness of the Athenians. Now, I want you to understand that being alone, he understood what? He wasn't alone. He understood God was with him. And in light of that, he was abiding in God and saw what God thought of all those other people. He was applying scripture and God's word to his mind all the time. So no matter what his circumstances, even when he was alone all by himself, he could not be silent. He couldn't couldn't keep quiet. So first we see the disciple was alone but fully engaged in his surrounding. Next we see the disciple is aware but also motivated to action. He was motivated to action. The disciple's awareness moves him to action. Paul was aroused to announce the gospel. Look at verse 17. This could literally be translated, Therefore, or so, he was reasoning in the scriptures or in the synagogues with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. The word so, therefore, can, can be translated therefore, rather. The idea is Paul's provoked spirit moves him to evangelize. We see here 
in these two verses how the Word of God works in the believer. The truth is embraced. God is known. Then the man of God accepts the truth. He then interprets his world through this divine revelation of God found in Scripture. And the believer is then moved in his heart by the Word as it is applied to his circumstance. And he then is motivated to action because of his understanding of the Word applied to his world. And again, I can't stress this enough. You know, be doers of the Word, not just hearers of the Word. We've talked about that. Well, how do you get from being a hearer to a doer? There's a step in there. Did you know there's a step? What's the step? It's got to hit your heart. It's got to hit your heart. Does the word of God really do something in you? If it affects you and affects your emotions, the seat of your will and your decision making, then you'll go. But if it never affects your heart, and it's all this theological construct, and you have all these great thoughts in your mind about you can answer anybody that comes to you and asks me, give me a defense of the five points of Calvinism, but you never apply that truth to your heart, and it never changes the way you live, then you will never be a doer of the word. But the Apostle Paul here, the word is changing him, transforming him, making him act different. The Bible applied produces action. Do you get that? We don't watch and quake. We don't watch and cower. We don't watch and hide. We don't watch and condemn. We don't watch and ignore. We watch and move in love. We watch and speak the truth. We watch and make an appeal to be reconciled to God, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. We watch and we beg sinners to repent and trust in Christ. We don't let the things of the world go without changing us. Why? Because the word of God has changed us. We're different now. We're new. We interpret everything different than the way the world does. And so we're constantly God's slave who is what? Correcting those in opposition with gentleness and kindness. 2 Timothy 2. Paul's actions motivated him and his heart motivated him to reason with the people concerning the gospel. He reasoned in two different places to four different or five different people groups. In the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing and in the marketplace with random people, people that God obviously brought to him. And then we'll see with those Epicureans and the Stoics Notice it says he was reasoning in the synagogues with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. What do we have here? It's a two-pronged approach for Paul now that he's in Athens. He's like, wait, I'm going to get somebody that maybe has a little bit of a biblical worldview, get them to get it. I'm going to reason with them and say Jesus is the Messiah. He died, rose from the dead, and he's now Lord Obey him, follow him, so that they will then what? Impact the community. But then he also just goes straight to the community, to the marketplace. And he does what? I got to talk to these people. They're going to hell. 
I've noticed that when I go into the synagogues, maybe he's thinking this. I get a small amount of Jews that, but man, I, I got to go straight to the source. There's problems. These people are idol worshipers. They're rebuking and blaspheming God. They're going to face judgment. So he goes to both places. Again, as we saw last time in Acts, Paul would reason from the scriptures. And he did here too. Now, while he does not directly quote the scriptures in his sermon that we'll talk about next week, he does still speak of the truth that's found in the scriptures. He presupposes those scriptures are true. And he speaks the truth that comes from the word of God. You understand? So he might not quote a Bible verse directly, but the truth that's in the scriptures is still the basis of everything that he says. How do we know this? Well, because of their response. Their response is negative because he says about the resurrection, that he died and rose from the dead. What was Paul's message, by the way? His message was not, hey, let's, let's take a little bit of time with these philosophers and see if I can get them to be won over to my way of thinking. I'm going to talk philosophically with them. No, you know what he told them? Jesus, God-man, strange deities, died and rose from the dead. That was his message to the philosophers. What did they think of him? They're wacky. They're nuts. But that's how he reasoned with them. Why? Because that's the only way out of idolatry. The gospel is the only way out of the idolatry. You will not find another way. So Paul sees the idolatry, and he's motivated to action, and he proclaims the gospel. Notice next we see the disciple is active, but not always accepted. Not always accepted. Look at verse 18. And also some of the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. The life of a disciple is all about trusting the Lord with the results, right, folks? We don't shrink away from the world that we live in. And when we speak, we boldly stand for the truth. We trust God with all the results. And when people reject the gospel as foolishness, what do we do? We keep on proclaiming that same message. Even when people say, you're a fool, what do we do? Fool for Christ because he saved me. Epicureans were similar to the hedonists of our day, today. They were pleasure seekers. They downplayed the thought of any God. They did this so that they could promote doing what was right in their own eyes. They were the ultimate pleasure seekers. You understand that is our culture, isn't it? That's why it was so, uh, I know Piper didn't mean this, and he meant be a pleasure seeker in Christ and find your pleasure in God. But the fact of the matter is, is that most of our society does what? They seek pleasure in themselves and in their flesh. So be careful, but that's what we're dealing with, isn't it? We have the same kind of group. And when we go to them, we say what? Pick up your cross and follow me. That is, be willing to die for Christ. Boy, that's pleasure seeking, isn't it? It is, if you understand Christ's glory is all that you're really about. 
But again, that is very offensive to an Epicurean. Plus, they didn't believe in a God, so they wanted to eliminate all gods out of the circumstance. And we are saying, bow to him. There is one God. The Stoics were pantheists. That is, they believed that there was a divine part of God in everything. You know, in the mic stand here, there's God. Uh, Divine logos is how they defined it. But it wasn't a God, really, per se. It was a spiritual force in everything. Thus, they emphasized discipline and promoting nature's way of evolving and getting better. So they were always looking for things to get better and looking for it to to arrive at a, a better end. So they were all about discipline. These were two competing philosophies in Athens at the time. They ruled the day, and they were so-called the wise thinkers of their day. But as we all know, the so-called wise thinkers of the world are in fact what? Fools. You understand that? You have naturalism today and you have hedonism of today. And guess what? Those are probably, you could argue that those are the two competing thoughts in our day today. In our country, naturalism, the idea that everything's about nature and we want everything to be, you know, it's getting better. We want to help the the uh, spotted owls, but kill our babies because we're crazy. These kind of things, the naturalists versus the hedonists, that's all about pleasure and could care less about any God. Let's do what's right in our own eyes. That's the same thing. Do you see it? There's nothing new under the sun. We're walking into the same Athens, aren't we? It's America. So what do we do with this? <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but do we bury our heads in the sand and say it's not a reality? Not going to deal with it. No. We confront it. We give the gospel. And what do they say to us? You're a fool. That's all right. Because the reality is, is the only thing that matters is the authority found in what? Scripture. What God says. And he says, I'm wise to follow him and fear him. And he says that you're a fool if you don't. We have to be there. We have to understand that there is a colliding worldview all the time. Do you understand that? Everywhere you go, you're colliding with somebody. If they're an unbeliever, their worldview is totally backwards, opposite of what you think. Everything you think, the opposite is true. Do you understand? Because they interpret everything through their lost heart. Whereas we interpret things through the scriptures. This is so typical of the world, folks. Turn over to 1 Corinthians. It's a great passage, and it's almost like Paul writes this with Athens in mind. You've got to understand that Corinth is right down the street, a little ways down the street from Athens. So they had many of the same gods and many of the same philosophies. 1 Corinthians 1, 18. It's a perfect commentary on our passage in Acts 17. I wonder if he even had it in his mind. Look at this. Verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And the cleverness of the clever, I will set aside. Where is the wise man? What's the implied answer to that? Nowhere to be found. Where is the scribe? 
Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made the foolish or made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom is, did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for a signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jew, a stumbling block, and to the Gentile, foolishness. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Wow, isn't this a profound commentary on the world? It is clear. It's a, it's a commentary on Athens, isn't it? What do we see? We see in this passage, verses 18 and 23, that the message of the gospel is foolishness to the lost world. That Christ is Lord, that Christ rules, Christ died and rose from the dead and is reigning. That's foolishness to the world. The wisdom of the world, also second, is revealed to be foolishness by God. This is crucial. Look at 19 and 20 again. The wisdom of the world is revealed to be foolishness by God. Listen, the wisest person in the world that's lost, that doesn't have a a born-again heart, is a fool to God. That how they think is backwards. It's the opposite. It's anti-God. Third, the wisdom of the world leads only to death. No, No human being has ever used a philosopher to get to God. They always lead off the path. And do you understand, you say, well, I don't deal with many philosophers, Mike. I'm in the workplace. I don't deal with them. Wrong answer. Every single people, every single person in your workplace that's not a believer is a philosopher. In our culture, in our society, it's everybody has an opinion. Everybody has their own worldview, their own philosophy, and they think if you tell them that you shouldn't, You're wrong. The fact of the matter is, is everybody we're dealing with leads to hell because their philosophy is this way. Now, what do we do with this? Are you grappling like me? If you're not thinking, man, this really grieves me about my work, co-workers, then we haven't been applying the scriptures like this before. We should be thinking this before you even come in should be constantly provoking us. But God has established, we also see in this passage in 1 Corinthians, His wisdom to be the only way for people to be saved. That Christ crucified, resurrected, and reigning is the only way to be saved. The cross is foolishness to the world because the world is looking for the wrong things. For the Greek is what? Seeking wisdom. Which is what? Foolishness. Their wisdom is foolishness. So when you really bring them God's wisdom, they say you're a fool. So how do we fix this? We preach the word and God calls his elect. He works in those that are his. 
In the end, God reveals that His way is the only way and the true wise way. God ultimately, you know what He's doing? He set it up this way for a specific purpose, that He would receive all glory and honor and power. He would be worshipped. Do you understand? His way is set up this way so that He receives full glory and honor. If it was about us somehow logicking our way or using our philosophies to get there, then what it would be is the greatest mind. I talked to a guy on campus this week. The greatest minds of this world would be the ones that are elevated. What does Buddha do? The Buddhists do. They elevate a man that found a way. And who gets the elevation? A man instead of God. That's evil. That's the wicked way. Beloved, back to Acts 17. Our passage explains why in Athens the philosophers rejected Paul's message. Why they said, you're an idol babbler. But Paul continued to press forward. And notice his opportunity in Athens did not come to an end. Notice in verse 19 it states, and they took him and brought him to the Aragopas, or Air, I said it, Aeropagas. Say it, Mark. There you go, Areopagus. Thank you. Areopagus. Said it. Heard it. Forgot it. Areopagus. Saying, May we know that this new teaching is which you are proclaiming. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. Oh boy, this is USF campus. This is a case where itching ears lead to opportunities to proclaim the gospel. But as we will see next week, most of their hearts were really not ready. I see this same kind of thing, like I said, on campus at USF when we are evangelizing. By the way, we're going again a couple of times this week. I think some are going Thursday. Is it this week or next week? This week. Some people are going Thursday night if you want to go, and they're going to be out there after 5, a little bit after 5, and then some are going Wednesday morning. I see the same thing at USF. Boy, if you want an opportunity to share the gospel with people, that's the perfect place to do it. As a whole, they have been trained that you have to listen to everybody's opinions. They've been trained. And a matter of fact, I see it. You see them come on campus, and they walk by. On last Wednesday, they just kind of want to chat with you. They want to talk about religion. They want to talk about ideas. Now, as soon as you get, just like I did with this one guy that was talking to me, he was a Hindu, as soon as you get to the cross... And the resurrection, his eyes just went a whole different direction. He wouldn't look me in the eye anymore. Sin has a consequence. God sent his son to die. I don't want to talk to you anymore. You're a fool. But great opportunities. You want to share the gospel, that's it. I'm telling you. The students just flock to it. They want to talk to you. But the problem was is that their motives are not always good. Their motives are really all about filling their brains with thoughts, but not necessarily submitting to anything except their own man-made gods that they have in their heart. 
or just a warning to all of us in the room, we don't want to be like these philosophers either. We don't want to be just about seeking to be entertained. Or, or This is one of the reasons why, I, though I went to a conference yesterday, I, there's an there's a element of the conference mentality that I don't like. It's let's go get a bunch of theological truth from these superstar guys, okay? And go back, and my life's no different. I, I just load my mind up, and I can be the great man. I heard a sermon once that was masterful on Calvinism. You need to listen to that. Because after all, limited atonement or uh, specific uh, atonement is true. Let me explain why. You need to go over and listen to the sermon. But being a theologically minded consumer means nothing if it doesn't change the way that you live. And I would argue that this week-to-week stuff where you kind of hear this guy up here rambling and sometimes messing up his vocabulary and messing up all of his grammar is more, much more important to you. I'm being honest because all I'm doing is teaching the next verse and I'm not trying to entertain you. There are times you fall asleep and that's okay. But you're going to keep hearing it. And again, I'm not just singing my music here. I think you... I think the word needs to be studied in whole, all the whole counsel of God's word, right? So be careful of falling into that same entertainment value. We need to check our hearts. The irony was that Paul was called an idle babbler. This idle babbler means that he was picking and choosing new truths to add up to make a new God. They were accusing him of plagiarizing other gods and other thoughts. It's very interesting when, in fact, what were they doing? The same thing. The irony was, come speak to us so that we can get a little bit from you. The stuff that we like, we'll keep, and we'll add it to our pantheon of gods. He got called what they were doing. Isn't that the way it usually works with Christians? We get accused often of doing the very thing that the person is doing to us. We see it all the time. We saw it this week. There was a a headline... Um, that said something to the effect of or, or that Cath- in California that you can no longer go on campus and proclaim an intolerant view of anything. It's against the rules to go on a California campus and proclaim an intolerant view of anything. What is that? That's intolerance. <laughs> it, it's foolish. It's crazy. You can't do what we're telling you you can't do. Wait, yeah. This is the world that we deal with. So we need to be what? Not only hearers of the word, but we need to embrace the word. We need to think on the word, and then we need to pursue the word, and we need to proclaim the word. We passionately pursue knowing God and making him more, don't we? making him known to more people. We need the Lord to continue to make us people who delight in him, don't we? Uh, Folks, we have got to be a people of the gospel that enjoy it daily. For if we do not enjoy Christ daily, then we're not going to proclaim him to the world. He has got to be in everything that we do. No matter what, we can't be silent when we see the world around us dying and going to hell, correct? Many of us don't have a problem with being provoked to anger 
Our problem is, is that we're provoked to anger for the wrong reasons. And then when we get angry, even over the right reasons, we then stifle those emotions. And instead of responding with sharing the gospel, we think unbiblically and we respond unbiblically. Again, I'm not saying go out there and scream at people like some of the guys on campus this week that were screaming at them and calling them names and never giving them the hope of the gospel that saves. I'm not saying that. Or perfectionism, teaching a wrong doctrine. But I am saying let the world affect you. Let it stir your heart. And let the word of God then interpret how you view the world. And then what do you need to do? Take action. Speak up. Proclaim Christ. That's what we need to do, right? Let's pray. Father, we praise you and thank you for your word. We thank you for courageous men like the Apostle Paul that give us a a beautiful example of your spirit's work within us. Help us, Father, to be those kind of people that we are provoked by the world around us because we see them sinning against you, but also grieved by their final uh, direction and how it leads to death. And help us, Father, please enlighten our hearts, ignite us to know our world and apply the scriptures to it, and then help us, Lord, to share the truth, the hope of the gospel. Oh, Father, we need you. We are prone to wonder, prone to be me-centered. We need you, Father, please. We thank you for Christ. We thank you that he died for even our me moments. And that he is on his throne. And that all of our sins are paid for. And that we are right with you because of Christ. And yet, Lord, we want to proclaim him and live him and be who we are in Christ. Father, I pray if there's someone in this room that doesn't know you, I pray that you will work in their hearts. Oh, Lord, help us to beg these people to come to Christ. Help us to be exposed for our unbelief. And then, Lord, help us to find our hope in the gospel and to turn to you. We love you, Father. We commit our time and our weak in our efforts in this world to you. May we be be ambassadors of Christ that bring great glory to our King. We pray this in his name. Amen. Please stand.